to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. I'm very be, I'm very pleased to be joined again by Frank Pallotta, uh, the CNN media reporter uh, and and tweeter extraordinaire. Um, uh, I am I'm big news today. There's big news today. We're we're, we're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, MGM and Amazon have uh, have finished their deal. A- Amazon is acquiring MGM for eight point four five billion dollars. There's some debt involved in that, etc. But it's a big move. Uh, it gives Amazon not only a huge library to put on Prime Video, but also a uh, a huge back catalog of franchises and exploitable IP, as they like to say. What is what does this deal mean for Amazon, for MGM, and for us, the consumer? Yeah. So let's start with Amazon. So the big question here is is why would Amazon want MGM? MGM, for those of you who don't know, was one of the original Hollywood studios, the studio of the Hollywood golden age. It was formed in 1924. Louis B. Mayer, Irvin Thalberg, the same guy that they named the award after. We're talking Wizard of Oz, Gigi, Ben-Hur, uh, co-production of Gone with the Wind. It is, it is the roaring lion, Leo the lion. Um, but I, over the years, you know, MGM has gone through a lot of like hits, misses, mergers, acquisitions. Uh, and, and it's been kind of like through all of these different sea changes in Hollywood. I mean, it's funny to think about, but the original MGM was a merger between two studios and a production company. So even 100 years ago, they were kind of doing the same things they're doing now. Uh, but ultimately for Amazon, what they're really getting here is content. And that's the name of the game for everybody. It's content, content, content. But what's the content that MGM really has? Well, they have, you know, a lot through their through their partnership with uh, United Artists, which they bought back in the 80s. They have Rocky, which is good. You got Creed and all that stuff. You got The Handmaid's Tale through their TV production. You have Legally Blonde, RoboCop, all that stuff. But the big one here, the big doozy of them all, and what Amazon is really buying is James Bond. James Bond, one of the most important and successful and popular franchises in movie history. And really the last major franchise that's out there. Marvel's bought up. Uh, Star Wars is bought up by, uh, you know, DC's with uh, my parent company, Warner Media. James Bond was kind of still floating out there, just waiting to be picked off. And Amazon's really buying James Bond, as well as, you know, a bunch of reality programming and all this. But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, they paid $8.4 billion for this. Is that really worth it? Did they overpay? I mean, you can make the argument they definitely did. But look at it this way. Lucasfilm and Marvel combined cost probably less than what Amazon just paid for all of MGM. So that really just goes to show how much this stuff is speeding up and how much is being really spent on the streaming wars and now kind of these takeover wars. We should explain to people exactly what the deal is with James Bond's ownership, because it's actually a little trickier than uh, I think some people believe. MGM only owns a 50% share of James Bond, right? Correct. The other 50% is owned by something called Everything or Nothing, or better known as Eon. And Eon is uh, run by, and I'm going to probably butcher this last name, but it's the the Broccoli family, the Broccoli family. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. But these are the same people that have basically been producing... Through the generations, James Bond since, you know, the 1960s. And they are very, very much about the theatrical experience. And they're very much have final say when it comes to how James Bond is produced and rolled out. This is why you probably haven't seen James Bond spinoffs or James Bond, you know, TV shows. Because they're very, very careful with the brand because they understand how important 
and how vital the brand is to not their own company, but to the character themselves. Like James Bond, really, even more so than Marvel or Star Wars, is a lifestyle. Like people watch James Bond and, you know, the shaken, not stirred, and the cars, and the women, and Daniel Craig's shorts when he gets out of the beach. You know, all this stuff is very James Bond esque. While Marvel, Star Wars, DC, all this stuff can be morphed and formed. James Bond is James Bond. You can't really touch that. So Amazon is buying James Bond, but they have to also work with Eon to kind of figure out how to bring James Bond to the 21st century. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating deal because I was I was looking into it a little more because again, it just it's it's interesting little business of Hollywood stuff. It, the, the the control is 50-50, down to the point where Eon can in theory and technically go in and say we don't want this line of dialogue in the script you got to take it out i mean i like i just i part of me has trouble envisioning how a bezos-led company though granted he's leaving in uh, short order here but you know a bezos-led company can share that sort of power on such a big purchase i mean i i agree with you that mgm's crown jewel is james bond but that sort of power sharing arrangement seems tricky yeah, it's, it's a very tricky deal when you think about it, because when you look at James Bond, that's what Amazon's really buying. And Amazon is not going to be a company where it's like, you know what, we're just going to buy this thing, this product, this brand, this character, and just put them on the big screen. That's all we're going to do with them. We're only going to put them on the big screen. Now, mind you, you can make billions of dollars by doing that. James Bond is one of the most successful franchises of all time. I believe it's brought in more than $7 billion since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But Amazon's more than just that. Amazon wants to get those tentacles in every single part of your life, and they want to use something like James Bond to get it there. So how this is going to work going forward is really, really interesting. The other interesting thing about this is when you think of MGM, like I said earlier, you think about The Wizard of Oz, you think about the golden age of Hollywood. MGM doesn't own that stuff anymore because they sold right. it to Ted Turner back in the 80s. So that's why you're able to watch Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz on HBO Max. It's actually owned by Warner Media. So it's weird to think that Amazon kind of went out and bought this company that doesn't have the golden age stuff that defined it and is kind of splitting up uh, its most important IP with another company. But when you think about Amazon, they paid $8.4 billion for this. That's really the amount of change that Jeff Bezos can find in his couch. I, I, I just think they wanted to buy something and this is what was available. Yeah, I, I, it, there, it, it, there is something to be said for just having an ocean of cash. I mean, that that's one reason why people thought uh, MGM might wind up with Apple, just because Apple has so much money and and needs production studios. And I mean, there, that's the other thing to think about here. There is there is an enormous amount of real estate that goes along with this deal. MGM still has lots of buildings in Hollywood to 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 shoot stuff on. Um, I, you know, I, I one one last. Uh, question about this it was interesting to see what bezos himself said about this and he said uh you know we we are looking to bring franchises into the 21st century we're looking to exploit this ip and i i am kind of curious what that ends up looking like because obviously you know prime video itself is a streaming service like netflix or anything else um and that is you know needs needs big brands and big content but there is still the theatrical element and there is still uh, you know, everything else that goes along with that. I, 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 I am curious to, I don't know, just consider for a moment what a franchise in the 21st century looks like outside of what we've seen so far from Marvel or, or Disney or Star Wars. That's what I was about to say. I think you've already seen what a franchise looks like in the 21st century. Just turn on Disney+. Plus. 
go to a Marvel movie, go to a, you know Avengers Campus at Disneyland. Like that is what a franchise is now. It is it is Disney calls it, uh, especially at their parks, they call it the metaverse, where everything is kind of connected, both in the physical and the digital sense. And I would even now say the the content sense. So again, look at something like James Bond. James Bond, let's say if they can get by this eon hurdle you can create tv shows with james bond that are on streaming you can create branded products that you can sell via amazon prime think about the watches think about the suits you can do all of that you can create games with james bond and make money that way and then on top of all of that like one of the biggest films of this year the one i'm looking forward to the most is no time to die which opens in october if it opens in october because it's been delayed multiple times but that is now really going to go forward uh, an Amazon production, which is also really weird because James Bond is in transition. This is Daniel Craig's last film. We don't know who the next James Bond is going to be. But beyond all of that, for Amazon, I look at something when it comes to brands in the 21st century, it's also about global brands, global. And James Bond is, I'd say, a top five global brand, if not the global brand. There is nowhere on this planet that you can go and say James Bond and someone won't know what you're talking about. And for something like Am- for a company like Amazon that is out here trying to dominate the entertainment and media world as well as the rest of any business they can really disrupt globally, you know, it's good to have something like James Bond. And I wouldn't pass it by someone like Jeff Bezos who has hundreds of billions of dollars to just kind of say, "Hey, I own James Bond now." And that is something that he can just kind of tell people, which is Listen, yeah. if I if I had a hundred billion dollars, I I could not tell you the amount of dumb stuff I would buy. Yeah, uh, that's fair. That's uh, that that is always something to consider. Speaking of global movie brands, uh, F nine is now out in a large portion of the world. It's out in China, uh, uh, much of Asia, um, and it is racking up uh, dollars in China. It does not come out in the United States for another month. It does not. I mean, the United States market almost feels like an afterthought. Uh, here and I, I wonder if this is, uh, I wonder if this is a abnormal uh, or b just a sign of the new normal. Um, I think it's a bit of both. So you said it feels like the U.S. is an afterthought. It is. It's no longer the number one movie market in the world. China is. China is growing. China bounced back from the pandemic a bit faster. So their theaters are kind of more kind of revved up. But beyond all that, when I the brands in China really, really matter. And that is not just for F9, but it's especially for F9. Because F9 is a part of the Fast and Furious franchise, which is arguably more international than it is domestic. Case in point, uh, it, it made, I believe, close to $2 billion its last film. 80% of that was international. 20% was domestic. That is a huge difference in percentages. So if you're F9, this you know very multicultural global franchise that travels all over the world china's a huge important part of it basically you cannot get to a billion dollars without china you just can't like i mean and this is the case for marvel movies this is the case for you know uh transformer films this is a case across the board and china's incredibly important to the bottom line of these franchises and so it kind of it's weird that it opened like a month ahead but it's not because this is their big opening and whatever happens in june will obviously be important to the buzz of the film and to people like you and i who live in america but at the end of the day it's going to be incredibly more important to have it 
really rev up and, you know, to use a car pun, get out of the gate quickly in China. And that's what it kind of did. It was near close to pre-pandemic levels and it's, it's doing pretty well so far, but it does come with a lot of complications and some headaches. Sure. Uh, speaking of one of those headaches, uh, John Cena has been all over the news, uh, not only here in America, but also in in China because of a gaffe he made. He said Taiwan is a nation to the Taiwanese people uh, and and folks in China were not a fan of that. I uh, I mean, I, I look at this from a uh, from from both a global um geopolitical point of view as well as a Hollywood business point of view because it, it is a it's a it's a very weird and tricky situation uh, and also I think frankly kind of embarrassing to have you know John Cena making videos speaking in Mandarin essentially uh, like I, I saw described as a hostage video uh, uh, earlier today and that's exactly what it felt like it felt like him him trying to save his bacon by saying the right things to his uh, his overseers in China what I find really interesting about the Fast and Furious franchise is if you really watch the films, what they basically are, are 1990s action movies. I was talking to a fellow uh, uh, movie reporter about that, and we were kind of finding, trying to figure out what happened to the 1990s, you know, the cliffhangers, the, the 1980 Commando movies, these outrageous action films. And I think what happened was globalization happened. It's really hard to sell action movies to a global audience because action movies, when you really think about it, are as American as apple pie. They, they are incredibly American. And it's, it's very difficult to sell this to a big audience. But the other thing I find really interesting is I keep hearing over and over and over again that streaming is going to kill the theater. Streaming is going to disrupt Hollywood. And that's fair. That's a fine argument. But I think what people are really missing here is the thing that could really disrupt Hollywood, the thing that could really kill theaters, is if China just goes one day, you know what? We don't really care to have your films anymore. We don't really need them. We produce great films over here, films that do incredibly well. We don't need F9 anymore. We don't need Black Widow or Shang-Chi or Eternals anymore. We don't need these films. And then what happens to this blockbuster ecosystem that is built on $400 million budgets for these movies that need to make a billion dollars just to break even or even come close to breaking even. What happens if China no longer wants those movies? And these are the questions that our executives are really asking. And you know, if you're someone like me who grew up through the 80s and 90s, it's been something that's really come on incredibly quickly over the last 15 years. And it'll be interesting to see what happens while this is also going on alongside the streaming revolution. Yeah, I, I, this is a great point. I think about this all the time. I think this, this is the thing that like, I wouldn't say keeps me up at night, but it's the thing I think about as I go to bed uh, is what happens if the Chinese film market goes away? Because that radically changes what we see here in the, the domestic sphere. But I wonder if it wouldn't be a change. I, 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 qualitative analyses of these are hard to say because what is better, what is worse? I like the, the MCU movies, but I also, I also wouldn't be opposed to an entire ecosystem that's nothing but thirty to fifty million dollar movies instead of you know four four hundred million dollar movies. I like. I just think there's. I, I I wonder if there is a radical break that's coming that is going to change the very sort of thing that we see in theaters and if theaters can survive that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. But I think about this all the time as well, because my favorite movie of all time is an action movie and it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark was not made for $400 million, but it's one of the best action movies ever made. Obviously, 1981 is very different than now, but it'll be really interesting to see if China does 
even not for these like geopolitical reasons, just kind of goes, listen, we look at look like we do really great movies on our own here. Maybe we don't need to go through the process of bringing you guys over to, for our audiences. And then where does that leave Hollywood? Does, is there a giant crash where we kind of see this like a house of cards situation happen? Or maybe do we see a situation where China no longer becomes a big option and there's almost this kind of like weaning off and we see maybe the uh, idea of what a giant blockbuster is change. Maybe they're no longer $400 million spectacles. Maybe there's something like, you know, uh, you know, like like Cliffhanger, Air Force One, or True Lies, or something that is made on a smaller scale, and maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. I, I don't know. I think we're I think we're still a far ways off from that, but I think it is something that has to be considered more and more, especially after the pandemic that has kind of given China even more strength. Uh, and especially given what's going on with the MCU right now. I mean, uh, you know, we are we are in a weird. Uh, there, there was, there was an interesting and like I, if I was Disney, kind of scary story out of China that uh, the Eternals and Shang Chi were not on a list of you know forthcoming features uh, that were going to be played from America in China. And of course, Chloe Zhao has run into some issues with the the Chinese censors over there. I, I wonder if if they pull the plug on Disney, uh, does the if if the rest of the industry follows, or I mean, what what's your sense in talking to folks at Disney? Are they are they actually worried about this, or do they think that it's a it's it's not really going to be an issue? Um, not so much to the people I've talked to at Disney, but just overall in the industry, I think this is something that people are obviously aware of. But I, it, it's so hard to be worried about one thing right now if you're working at a yeah. studio. There is so many fires. You're trying to rebound your production, which has been delayed or stalled out. You're trying to figure out if you want to keep theater exhibition, which is still the best way, in my opinion, of making a ton of money. You're trying most likely to build out your streaming endeavor so that you can compete. And, and at the same time, you're trying to globalize your product for audiences around the world. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but making a movie for an entire world that has multiple different cultures and languages and, and heroes and villains and all this stuff, it gets really diluted and really complicated. And a place like Disney has done an incredible job so far of you know getting their product out there. But for every Marvel, there's a Star Wars movie. Star Wars movies do terrible in China. They, they don't do yeah. well. So like this is a problem that everyone is kind of going through. And right now, executives and, and, and the studios are trying to figure out um, what's next. I've said this before, but basically it's like all of Hollywood is playing roulette. And it used to be you bet on the red or the black. And now it's you're betting on a bunch of different numbers. And are you winning as much? No. But are you losing as much? No. So that's what I, I think it's really hard for people to figure out. There's not one thing that's really scaring anybody right now. It's kind of just like a myriad of things. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about summer. Summer's here. A Quiet Place 2 hits theaters this this weekend. I, I feel like that's the unofficial kickoff of summer this year. Uh, and then we're you know, we head off to the Fast and Furious, Black Widow. We've got we got lots of stuff coming up. What does summer look like from your POV? What should people what should people interested in the business of Hollywood be paying attention to when it comes to these these big releases? I think everything from this upcoming weekend through July 4th or I would say July 9th, which is Black Widow, but around that area. Because every weekend is going to matter. Every weekend is going to tell a tale. And every weekend, it's going to be either, oh my God, the revival of theaters. We made it, guys. We're back. Or it's going to be like, oh my God, theaters are dead. Everything's dead. I'm dead. So it's like, that's what basically is going to happen. And for, for, for exhibitors, 
you couldn't ask for a better movie to kind of try to bring back people uh, because horror is just different in theaters. It's different. It's not the same as watching at home. And a movie like Quiet Place, like I, I really enjoyed the original Quiet Place. I thought it was really well done, really well shot. You know, who would have thought Jim from The Office actually is a pretty good director. But the thing about it is it's not like a psychological thriller. It's not like a, a creepy or like get under your skin horror film. It's a jump scare. It's a haunted house. It's basically you go and they literally, it's like an hour and a half. You just scream for an hour and a half. It's like, oh my God, this thing just jumped out at me. You watch it at home. I can be on my phone. I can be cooking. I can be doing something else. You go to a movie, you're trapped. You're trapped in that place. And that is incredibly beneficial for theater owners to kind of sell that experience. You're not coming to a movie, you're coming to a haunted house, but the best type of haunted house. And the reviews are really good. And also with horror, the budgets don't have to be these huge things. It doesn't have to open to $200 million to be thought of as a success. It can open to $40 million and people will go, wow, what a great job. And we've kind of seen this uh, so far this year. Same thing happened with Godzilla vs. Kong. That movie's meant to be watched on the biggest screen possible because those are the two biggest, you know, icons in monster movie history. And yeah. then in a couple weeks, they're going to get lucky again with exhibitors. Uh, exhibitors are going to get lucky with uh, In the Heights, which is another genre that is just perfect for theaters, which is musicals. It's basically selling, hey, do you like, do you like Hamilton? Well... Do you want to see another musical by that guy and have it be the most colorful, multicultural, fun time? I think I think that is going to really tell a lot about the next couple of weeks. If those films over exceed, I think it could really lead to some really good vibes in Hollywood before we hit the blockbuster two weeks where we're going yeah. to have F9 and Black Widow, which come with their own type of you know hurdles, as I've already said. International is more important, F9, and Black Widow is going to open also on the same day as Disney+. Plus. Some people might just want to stay home. Right. But if the summer gets revved up, that bleeds into fall with, you know, Shang-Chi, Eternals, No Time to Die. And then that bleeds into winter with uh, Spider-Man, no, uh, no Way Home, West Side Story, and then you're in 2022. And maybe the pandemic is even really gone. Yeah. Maybe masks are gone. So it all starts this weekend, that kind of snowball effect. Obviously, if it's a miss, if something bombs, it's not going to be the end of the world, but it's going to be more the end of the world than it was just two summers ago. Yeah, and we should uh, should be clear that the uh, Black Widow is going to be on the premiere Disney premiere access thing that you pay extra extra money for. I, I just mentioned this because I know somebody will say, wait, it's going to be on Disney Plus and I, I'll have to explain. No, you're going to have to pay extra for it. Um uh, what what I it, what numbers should people be looking for in terms of box office? I, I, this is the I I because I, I look I'm I'm obsessed with box office. When box office mojo changed its uh, its formats, you know, R.I.P. We poured one out. It was it was a real devastating day in the bunch household. Um, uh, but but I I I am I I obsessively watch these numbers, and I don't know what counts as good or bad anymore. Um, I, you know, Godzilla versus Kong did under a hundred million dollars. It's right at a hundred million dollars. It's getting it's it's close, but it, it probably won't get there. And that's considered a huge success. It would not have been considered a huge success, you know, two summers ago. I, I don't know if we're looking at a quiet place and we should think, all right, this movie should do twenty-five million or it should do ten million. I, I just like I'm curious what you are looking for uh, as a reporter. What's your benchmark for success on these on these pictures? So the issue here is that 
the apples to apples are out the door. You really can't compare this situation to the last situation for the main reason we're still in the middle of a pandemic, even though vaccinations are ramping up and restrictions are loosening. Um, you can't compare like Quiet Place Part 2 to Quiet Place Part 1. That being said, let's say Quiet Place Part 2 makes close the same to the same amount as the original movie. That's success. You know, you said that, you know, Godzilla vs. Kong wouldn't have been considered a success a couple of years. I think it might have been because if you looked at Skull Island and King of the Monsters, it did better than those movies. And those movies weren't opening during a pandemic. But then at the same time, you make the argument of, well, they what were they up against? They weren't up against anything. They were basically the only movie playing that week. So this is where someone like me comes in. And this is why I'm, I'm very helpful to the public right now, because I have to come in and basically say, this is, this is why this is a big deal and this is why it's not. Because basically, it doesn't really matter what these movies bring in. I mean, obviously it does because like if a movie bombs, a movie bombs and this is a business, but the buzz matters more. If people are talking about it, if you're seeing you know, it, it, it trending on Twitter, if you're seeing people talk about it, if your friends are like, you gotta go see A Quiet Place. I don't know if we're gonna get there this summer because I think a lot of people need to remember to come back to the movies. I just think, you know, people want to do it, but in the same way, there's a lot of things on the list that people want to do first. They probably want to travel. They probably want to go to a bar and drink with friends. They probably want to, tr- they probably want to go to a restaurant, have a nice meal. Uh, they want to get away from their kids for more than two hours. You know, they, they, they want to do those things. So it's going to be very hard to judge it, but the best thing that an average person can do is just like, you know, if people are talking about it, then People are then then it's a success because right now, um, you know, I've talked to some people at at the exhibitions at at, at theater exhibit uh, theater exhibitors, and what they basically were like: this isn't the summer. Next summer is the summer. This is the most important summer until next summer. And they and they're and they are saying that, which is kind of untrue, but it's also true at the same time because uh, this is still a trial run this summer, and they kind of want to use the summer to remind people how awesome the movies are. But we won't probably have a summer until next year when we get like Jurassic World Dominion and some other films in which we can actually be like, oh, this was a huge box office opening because it made blank million dollars. Right now, it's yeah. more just kind of reading the room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's I as I said, I, I am obsessed with this stuff. I have no idea what to expect, which is exciting and also terrifying. I can't imagine how the theater owners feel uh, about it. Um, one last thing as we as we exit here, uh, award shows, terrible numbers this year, terrible numbers this year. Is this just a function of, uh, you know, uh, COVID apathy or is is there something else at work here? Is is this just a is this just a, a another shift in audience uh, audience habits that is probably not going to to rebound to normal. So what I've been saying a lot lately is that it's kind of uh, what what COVID has taught me is that things can be more than one thing. Things aren't binary, and I think it's a mix of both. I think it's really hard to watch things that are meant to be escapist during a pandemic. If you look at sports ratings, sports ratings are kind of you know sluggish as well. The NFL was down, NBA is down. Uh, MLB has kind of bounced back a little bit, but that's because it came back during the kind of revival of Mm -hmm. like, we're coming back to earth. Um, It's just really hard to watch the Oscars and be like, look at all these people having a good time and wearing nice dresses. And we've lost, you know, 30 people in New York City today to like to COVID. It's it's really hard. I remember watching the Super Bowl and I was just like, this used to be something 
that I would watch to escape my current like life and now it's like right on top of you because you're seeing you're seeing people wear masks you're seeing social distancing on the field it's it's hard to want to tune into stuff like that but at the same time award something like the oscars the awards were the the ratings were going down for the award show for years they've been kind of going down for five to six years so it's also a mixture of both i think it's a it's a mixture of what are these shows anymore? Like, what do they really do? What do they mean to the average person? I mean, think about like think about it this way. Like, you know, some of the biggest award show ratings for the Oscars was The Return of the King year, was Titanic, was these years in which, you know, people actually saw the movies. The one year, I, the, 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 the data point I always love is that uh, I believe since 2014, the numbers were going down. And one year it went back up. And that was the year where Get Out, and like you know, uh, Black Panther and Lady Bird were all nominated for Best Picture, and I really do believe it's because movies were like people saw the movies and they were like, oh, I want to see if Black if Black Panther is going to win, yeah. and they tune in. But all respect to Nomad Land, Promising Young Woman, you know, Mank. It's like, Mank. hey, Mank has has really the general public seen these films? And think about it, they were on Netflix, they were on yeah. streaming, and people still didn't really watch them. And you can make the argument maybe they they were beautiful films, but maybe they were films also that were just kind of like super, you know, depressing during a time when things yeah. were really depressing. So it's kind of hard to kind of uh, make that work for award shows. Even something like the Grammys, which I thought put on a really good show, really struggled. And I think it's a mixture of just people's tastes are changing. And it's really hard to watch a bunch of people in tuxedos when you got a pandemic going on. Yeah. Uh, well, that's everything I wanted to ask. I always like to close the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked. What did we? Is there anything in the world of Hollywood business that that people should know about right now that that uh, didn't come up? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think so. It, it's really weird. There's so much happening right now. Like there's just so <laughs> much happening, and I think that the most interesting thing right now is just going to be um, how everyone comes out of the pandemic. So how does Hollywood rebound? coming out of the pandemic. We're seeing a lot of takeovers, we're seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. It's kind of, I've been saying to people that I feel like the pandemic for a lot of people who were lucky enough to not have any real loss in their life, kind of, it was like the third act of A Christmas Carol. You kind of saw your, you kind of saw that name on the tombstone and you were like, I gotta make some changes. And that's the same thing for Hollywood. I think Hollywood kind of went into this, went into the pandemic being like, you know what, we got a few years before the disruption really happens. And everything got so accelerated. And now we're basically where we should be or would have been without the pandemic about like 10 years from now. So I think the speed of everything moving is something to definitely keep an eye on. And also, what does it mean for consumers? Because I think that gets lost in all of these like really glowy, flashy mergers and acquisitions. What like, is it a good thing that Amazon has James Bond now? Like, is it for consumers? We'll see. But the argument could be made that maybe it isn't. And we'll have to find out. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us uh, on this very busy week, Frank. I really appreciate it. Uh, follow him on Twitter. He is he's wonderful. Lots of good information there. Uh, if you're interested in the business of Hollywood, uh, and uh, as always, I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.